This episode is dedicated to the men and women of our armed forces and first responders. Whether you are currently serving or have served in the past, you are appreciated. It is because of your courage and sacrifice that we enjoy the freedoms and liberties we hold dear. And I, for one, appreciate every single one of you for protecting what many of us take for granted. So thank you. Stories and content in Weird Darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. Welcome, Weirdos! I'm Darren Marlar, and this is a Weekend Archive episode of Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, legends, lore, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you've not already subscribed to this podcast, you can do so right now for free so you don't miss future episodes. And if you're already a Weirdo, please share this episode with your friends, family, and co-workers so perhaps we can bring them into the Weirdo family as well. Before we dive into this episode, be sure to set a reminder for yourself for Listen and Chat Wednesdays, where we all jump into the Weird Darkness chat room, me and all of you, my Weirdo family, to listen to and discuss a recent episode of Weird Darkness, along with anything and everything you want to talk about. You can join the chat on your computer, your laptop, even your smartphone. It's every Wednesday, 9 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern. Get the details at WeirdDarkness.com. Hope to see you this coming Wednesday. Now, bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the Weird Darkness. This household spirit has many names, such as Demovic, Demalvoy, Grandfather, Grandfather Well-Wisher, and he is very similar to Brownie, known from Scottish fairy lore. However, in the life of ancient Slavs, Demovic is one of the most important mythological creatures. He protects and guards the sanctity of the home. He is believed to protect the home from all kinds of tragedies and disasters, including diseases, thieves, forces of nature, and evil spirits. Though Domovic never brings harm to people, he is sometimes responsible for the so-called poltergeist. In Russian folklore, particularly in the Polish, Serbian, Bulgarian, Croatian, and Ukrainian lore, the Domovic is a male who is sometimes described as an old gray-haired man who loves fire and lives behind the hearth or a furnace, but other people believe that he has his own corner in the home where he lives and eats. Demovic is invisible to the human eye and present everywhere inside the home at the same time, and yet it is said that cats are able to see him. That is why he most probably does not like cats and chases them around the house. So if you see your cat staring at anything inside the home and there appears to be nothing there, the cat may very well be staring at Domovic. Sometimes the Domovic assists the family members with their daily activities, 
such as household chores, feeding livestock and lending a hand with field work. He can even be a babysitter for small children and those children can silently play by themselves for hours without making any trouble. Or if your child says he has an imaginary friend, his friend may be a Domovic. But it also happens that Domovic punish the women of the house who break diverse long-lasting traditions. At night, food used to be left out for him in his own corner because it brings luck and prosperity to the household. The spirit does not eat this food but rather consumes the energy off the food that is left for him. An angry or abused Domovic is dangerous and can burn the house. In ancient times, this spirit was often consulted as an oracle, and if a question was asked of it and his invisible touch was gentle and soft, then it meant it was a good omen for a family. But if Domovic's touch was cold, rough, and artless, it foretold misfortune and even death in the family. No one knows where Domovic comes from, and it is also difficult to describe him because he is invisible but he is always present in the home, fulfilling his duties. There are many crimes in ancient Greek myths, but this story is about not only one crime, but a terrible massacre committed by 49 maidens which are later terribly punished for their horrible wrongdoing. This very powerful Greek legend says that these maidens were daughters to Danaeus, son of Belus, king of Egypt, and twin brothers of Aegyptus. Driven out of Egypt by his brother, Danaeus fled with his fifty daughters, the Danaides, to Argos, where he became king. Soon thereafter, the fifty sons of Aegyptus also arrived in Argos. The sons of Aegyptus presented themselves to Danaeus's daughters and asked to marry them, and unfortunately Danaeus, having no choice, was forced to consent to their marriage with his daughters. He knew that Aegyptus arrived to take over his new kingdom, so he organized a wedding party and decided to preside at the marriage feast. But he had a plan. At the feast, Danaeus gave each of his daughters a dagger, and all of them had been told what to do. They had to obey their father. After the marriage, in the dead of night, they killed their husbands. Only one of the girls, Hypermnestra, did not commit the crime. She felt pity for her young husband, Lyncaeus, and spared his life. She woke her husband, told him the truth, and helped him to flee. Her father, Danaeus, brought her in front of the Argos court and threw her into prison for her treachery to him. One story says that she and Lyncaeus came together again and lived at last in happiness. They had a son, Abus, the great-grandfather of Perseus, the legendary founder of Mycenae and of the Perseid dynasty of Danans. Another story says that Aphrodite, the goddess of love, helped Hypermnestra, saving her from punishment and her husband Lyncaeus, the only survivor of the fifty sons of Aegyptus, who later killed Danaeus for revenge over his brothers. The forty-nine daughters of Danaeus who killed their husbands were punished for their crime. 
they were compelled to pursue in the lower world as a punishment. At the river's edge, they filled forever jars full with holes so that the water poured away and they must return to fill them again and again. Their torture would never end. In Britain's fairy folklore, there is a frightening spirit, Anku, which means death, who is almost identical to the Grim Reaper, often mentioned in the fairy tales that originate from Cornwall and Wales in Britain and Ireland. This frightening and omnipotent spirit has the appearance of a man dressed in dark robes or a shroud and wearing an old hat. At times, Anku can appear as a dark shadow driving a black cart pulled by four black horses. Anku is portrayed as a tall, exhausted skeletal figure with flowing white hair. His head is able to turn at a 360-degree angle to symbolize its ability to see everything, everywhere. Ancient tales vary on the details of Anku's identity. One version of the tale says that Anku is headless, yet another describes this mysterious figure with two skeleton assistants who help Anku to collect the souls of the dead. An Anku appears when the last person in a calendar year dies in a parish. Their job for the next year is to guide the dead souls away from their bodies. Anku, who never misses a day, travels the countryside by using only one particular path and he usually appears at dusk with a scythe fitted upside down. The tale about Anku is very old. The Celtic Britons, who had a strong sense of the nearness of death, they did not fear it because in their beliefs, death represented the beginning of a better life, a miraculous journey to a place where no fear, sorrow, pain, and loneliness could ever hurt them again. However, some were always afraid of Anku which means grief and oblivion, and he's forever doomed to fulfill his task of collecting the souls of the dead and cannot ever leave it. The spirit Anku is particularly active and powerful on November Eve, October 31st. Ancient people believed that Anku was a personification of death, and to see him was understood as a clear sign of a person's death. An old Irish proverb says that when Anku comes, he will not go away empty. In Brittany, each parish had its own Anku, King of the Dead, that used to pay a visit when the last man died each calendar year. Keep listening, there is a lot more Weird Darkness to come. If you're listening to this episode, then you're already a part of our Weirdo family but you can become an official weirdo for even more creepy and strange stuff at WeirdDarkness.com. As an official weirdo or patron, you'll get each episode of Weird Darkness commercial-free. You'll receive exclusive news and offers for patrons only, and after three months, you'll also have earned a Weird Darkness official weirdo's lapel pin to wear wherever you go and spread the darkness. Get more information about becoming an official weirdo at WeirdDarkness.com. Depression comes to all of us at times. I know personally, as I suffer from depression myself, 
and have most of my life. But if you can't seem to get out of it, you're not alone. Call 1-800-273-8255. They'll show you a way out of your depression, even if you're trying to deal with it through drugs or alcohol. With the FMLA, you can take a leave of absence from your job and return to it once you've found help. Call 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by MyPillow, and right now you can get two premium MyPillows, normally $59.99 each, but now you can get both for just $69.98 combined. That's the lowest price ever offered in Weird Darkness, but you must use the promo code WEIRD to get this special deal. Visit MyPillow.com, click on the two-pack special, and be sure to use the promo code WEIRD. The house I'm currently living in is pretty old, but I wouldn't call it ancient. It's just an old house in a very old neighborhood. I've lived here for 20 years and I've got a lot of stories about this house. Both my father and I have witnessed things here that the average mind couldn't comprehend, from a man walking through walls to the sound of children singing in the basement. We stopped even bothering trying to work out what was behind all of these happenings. I've had the feeling of being watched in this house since I was six or seven years old. I can't see anything most of the time, but I know something is watching me. I ignore it as much as I can. I tend to wake up in the middle of the night. My room is normally the hottest room in the house, but when I wake up, it's freezing. I couldn't see anything, but I knew something was there. One time, I woke up to my freezing room. The door was wide open. I was alone in the house. To my absolute horror, I saw a small figure watching me from in front of the window. It was like a very see-through shadow. I could just make out that it was a child. At first, I thought it must have been my little cousin, but how would she have gotten into the house? The figure stood there until it faded away. I started to see that little figure more often after that. We would often stare at each other, and frankly, it freaked me out. I started to notice that the more I interacted with it, the more difficulty I had looking away from it. I would literally be forced to stare at it. The last time I saw it, we were locked staring at each other, and I literally forced myself to stop looking. The thing didn't like that at all. It screeched, faded, and I never saw it again. I don't even know what it wanted. It was just so creepy. A few months ago, I was awoken by something calling out. The voice sounded like mine, but I can't be sure. I also feel like I'm being followed all the time. I haven't seen that thing, but I know it's around. I honestly don't know if it's a demon a ghost, or just a figment of my imagination. A 
I used to live with another family, sharing the house of my grandparents where I have experienced numerous unworldly encounters. The other family slept in a large room in the house, adjacent to our bedroom. One morning, the mother of that family told us that one of her three sons sleeping in the largest bed in the room had been grabbed by the legs and pulled down halfway off the bed the night before. Unfortunately, he did not see the doer. By the time he was startled by the pulling and woke up, he already found his legs on the floor. Such a prank was done more than once to more than one of the sons. Having no sorcerer to exercise that spirit, her sons had to continue biting the bullet. As time went by, these incidents eventually became oblivious, and my family never heard about them anymore. Many years ago, I had a boyfriend in Vienna and would sometimes stay with him in his apartment. It was an old building, and the apartment next door had been occupied by a very old lady who had just passed away. This one evening, I was staying there alone. I went to bed and switched out the lights. It was very dark, as it was a gloomy apartment anyway with very thick curtains. I soon got to sleep but was awakened in the middle of the night by a bright light. To my utter amazement, the light seemed to emanate from a picture of the Virgin Mary on the wall between the bedroom and the old lady's apartment next door. I stared and watched this for some time before becoming uncomfortable by it and left to sleep next door. Unfortunately, I could not sleep at all, and once or twice I peeked back into the bedroom which was lit up by the light coming from the picture. As I watched, it seemed to me as if the figure was actually leaving the painting. I was very frightened by this experience. When I told my boyfriend of this, he told me that quite often he heard voices from the empty apartment next door. Our house was built by a man called Jack. Nothing in this house was done properly, and Jack died before he could do any more work. The floors were uneven. The cabinets, walls, and doors were all crooked. It's not a nice house to look at, but that didn't bother me. I had just gotten divorced, and Jack's daughter had invited me to live in her father's old house. I was happy to oblige. The first night I spent there was uneasy. The closet in my room gave me a really strong vibe. But you always think that about a new house, don't you? There's spooks in every new thing we do. Whenever I was in the kitchen, I felt like I was being watched. I constantly felt terrified in the basement. I hated the closet in my room. It smelled so strange. The crawl space under the house gave me my first experience of seeing the paranormal. I saw the figure of a man crouching under there. He looked young and preoccupied. I thought it was the exterminator, but as I walked towards him, he disappeared. Two weeks after that experience, my son told me that the man in the kitchen had threatened him, 
He pointed to the corner and said that he was Jack and that it was his house. He wanted to know what we were doing there and wanted to know where his stuff was. I scolded my son and told him not to make up stories. Naturally, I assumed he had overheard Jack's daughter and myself talking about the house. Later, I would come to realize that Jack was one of the many spirits that filled that house. I saw the man crouching under the crawlspace again. He was in exactly the same position he had been in before. I saw a man in the basement who seemed to be crying. One night, I was lying awake and all of a sudden, the sound of old country music on the radio came blaring from the basement. I went down and tried to find out what was going on. When I opened the basement door, the music stopped. But the TV in my room started up and I could hear a boxing match going on. I went back upstairs and my TV was turned off. I sat on my bed and my closet door opened. That was it. I was getting pretty freaked out and I decided to leave. I couldn't take it anymore. I collected my son from school the next day and we went to my parents to stay. My last night in that house was filled with footsteps, music, bangs, and all manner of intrusions. On the way to my parents' house, I was told by my son that Jack and Roy were the two ghosts. They had both died there and apparently didn't know anything about the other. My son explained that they had both appeared to him and seemed to be friendly. Friendly or not, we didn't live there again. I pretty much grew up in my grandma's home. It's small on an Indian reservation, but I loved it. I still do. My mom and I moved back in with my grandma before she passed away. She needed help driving around and keeping up the house. She had a rare tumor that caused her a lot of pain and loss of appetite. She had a nurse who would come and recommended that she go into the nursing home to help her get on a schedule. The idea was regular meals and medicine times so that she could get some strength and maybe the tumor would cause less problems. Unfortunately, it was all anyone could do. They had already operated and removed what they could. If they took more, she wouldn't survive. Well, anyway, my family lives pretty close to one another and my aunt's husband started to tell of a peeping Tom in the neighborhood. A lot of people were scared. I wasn't exactly afraid, but I was cautious. I started to lock doors and windows and double-check them before bed. I was always a night owl, so I was always the last person to check everything before bed. I would turn out the lights and make one last quiet round and then off to bed. The way the bed was facing, I could see out the door and look right at the little Christmas tree and big front window. Every night, I would see someone standing next to the tree. Sure, I was scared, but as I would get up and switch on a light, only the tree stood in the window. I would go around one more time and then to bed, look, and sure enough, he was back. I say he because he had the shape of a man, very square and tall. 
I never said anything to anyone because I tried to brush it off as I was tired or my mind was playing tricks on me, etc., and I would turn my back, squeeze my eyes shut, and try to sleep. But after a few nights, it kept happening. Sometimes it felt like he was only looking out the window, and other times it felt like he was staring back at me. Then one day, I was visiting my grandma and she was telling us how she kept dreaming of her late husband. She was afraid of him and didn't want him to touch her. He wasn't trying to hurt her and she knew that, but she was afraid anyway. Still, I didn't think much of this at the time. Finally, I said something to my mom and by now it had gone almost two weeks. She said she never heard or saw anyone but me in the house. But she did tell me that before my grandma's house was built, another stood in its place. My great-uncle Sonny was a smoker and an alcoholic. He lived in the house and it also had a big window. I never knew him because he passed before I was born, but they say he would just stand in the window, looking out over the fields and woods across the road. At the time, it wasn't strange because there was a lot of nature around. One day, he fell asleep, and his cigarette caught fire to the place and that is how he passed. I don't know how long it was before my grandma and grandpa built their house, though. Afterwards, when my family moved in, my grandpa would love to look out the big front window. He liked to look out into the night sky or just at the woods like my great-uncle Sonny. I didn't know my grandpa either because my grandpa passed long before my birth as well, but after hearing about Sonny and Grandpa, I had a feeling it had to be one of them. I always leaned more towards my grandpa, though, because of the dreams my grandma was having of him. On the morning of December 28th, we got a phone call from the nursing home that my grandma had passed away. It was a really cloudy, sad day. I couldn't believe she had gone. After that, I looked for the man in the window, but he never came back. I never saw him again after that, and that is what makes me believe it was my grandpa waiting for my grandma. World War I – The first war that saw widespread use of modern weaponry such as machine guns and biological agents on the battlefield. It also saw the usage of unrestricted submarine warfare when the German Empire attempted to disrupt Allied shipping with submarines. One of these submarines, the SMU-28, was a Type U-27 class of which only four were developed that had a fairly successful career. During the time it operated, though, the U-28 sank 40 ships damaged two more, and captured another two as prizes. However, one situation in particular stands out, and is remembered not so much by naval historians, but rather cryptozoologists, because of the possible sighting of an unidentified creature. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, Weirdos! This is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, 
mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And be sure to subscribe if you've not done so already so you don't miss future uploads. This week, you can save a child's life in Haiti or Guatemala for a single gift of just $50. That one-time gift of $50 will provide a full year of food and clean water for life for that child. I'll tell you more at the end of the podcast, but you can find out more right now and go ahead and make your donation by clicking the Give Life banner at WeirdDarkness.com or click the link in the show notes. Coming up in this episode of Weird Darkness… It was the train that carried the body of recently assassinated U.S. President Abraham Lincoln. It passed through Chicago in 1865, and it makes a return trip every year in the form of a phantom train. Would you be brave enough to move your family into a house located directly across the street from a mortuary? One man did just that and shares the story of what happened. A cemetery is a perfect place if you want to hide a secret. Could someone be hiding a time machine in a graveyard tomb? A child is convinced there is a ghost of a little girl in the bedroom. A specter screams in the middle of the night. A group of friends, an abandoned house, and a Ouija board. What could possibly go wrong? A family picnic ends with their four-year-old son disappearing but it's when he returns that the story truly gets disturbing. We begin with a World War I submarine that comes across something almost as scary as the war itself, an unidentified creature in the depths of the ocean. Now bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. On July 31, 1915, the SS Iberian, a British merchant steamer, was headed from Manchester to Boston, Massachusetts when it was torpedoed and sank by the U-28, roughly nine miles southwest of Fastnet, Ireland, and resulting in the deaths of seven people. The Iberian sank stern first, with the bow aiming directly upwards, and after about 25 seconds underwater, there was another, very large explosion which was most likely the Iberian's boilers exploding. However, during the explosion, U-28's commander or Captain-Lieutenant Frere Georges Gunther von Forstner reported seeing something very unusual. In his words, Forstner stated, The wreckage remained beneath the water for approximately 25 seconds, at a depth that remains clearly impossible to assess when suddenly there was a violent explosion which shot pieces of debris, among them a gigantic aquatic animal out of the water to a height of approximately 80 feet. 
At that moment, I had with me in the conning tower six of my officers of the watch, including the chief engineer, the navigator, and the helmsman. Simultaneously, we all drew one another's attention to this wonder of the seas, which was writhing and struggling among the debris. We were unable to identify the creature, but all of us agreed that it resembled an aquatic crocodile, which was about 60 feet long, with four limbs resembling large webbed feet, a long pointed tail, and a head which also tapered to a point. Unfortunately, we were not able to take a photograph, for the animal sank out of sight after 10 or 15 seconds. Apparently, the crew of the U-28 saw an unidentified sea creature resembling a crocodile get blasted out of the water, land, and then submerge again after a period of roughly 15 seconds. To date, the sighting reported by the U-28 is considered one of the most legitimate and least likely to be a hoax due to the personnel involved and the clarity of the description provided by Von Forstner. However, there are also many who take issue with the sighting. One issue that skeptics of Von Forstner's account have is how only seven people were killed when the Iberian sank, meaning that there were about 61 survivors who would go on to discuss the incident with English and Irish newspapers, as well as a few American passengers who would speak about it with newspapers in the U.S. None of their stories would include seeing a 60-foot-long crocodile-like sea creature. Another issue is how Von Forstner is the only member of the crew that saw the creature to have written any accounts of it, as well as not even recording the creature in his log when describing the sinking of the Iberian. There are many reasons, though, as to why Von Forstner's account is taken seriously. One reason would be as to why Von Forstner was the only member of the crew of the U-28 to report seeing the sea creature. By the end of the war, the five other witnesses whom Forstner had reported were dead which is not surprising since during both World War I and II, U-boat crews suffered from very high mortality rates. A second reason would be how Von Forstner was an accomplished submarine commander with 24 of the ships sank, one ship damaged, and two ships captured when he was the commander of U-28 from August 1, 1914 to June 14, 1916. That could be as to why Von Forstner did not report the creature in his log, as he may have considered such a detail to be unimportant during the war. There was also how Von Forstner and the five witnesses with him were all experienced seamen, and there's no reason why they should not have been able to identify the creature. Today, the U-28 creature, as it is now called, is ironically enough compared to other sightings of sea serpents despite being described like a crocodile and some theorize that the creature was actually a dinosaur such as a plesiosaurus or mosasaurus. There was no concrete way to determine what the facts are, as the witnesses have all since died and there were no photographs taken of the creature. It's important to note, however, that other similar cryptids, such as the Loch Ness Monster and Champ, are also considered to be prehistoric creatures, and that it's very possible that there are many undiscovered creatures roaming the deep, as even the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration states that less than 5% of the Earth's oceans have been explored. The Dunbar family spent a pleasant day fishing at Swayze Lake in Louisiana. 
It was August 23, 1912. Mrs. Dunbar had prepared a lunch for the family, so the parents and two boys walked back to enjoy a picnic. But their four-year-old boy, Robert, Bobby, never made it. After noticing that he was not with them, the parents weren't that worried. He had evidently just wandered off, perhaps distracted by something in the woods, and he'd gone to investigate. They called out for him, but he didn't appear. As the afternoon dragged on and Bobby still did not appear, his parents contacted the authorities who organized a search of the area. The only thing found was a series of small footprints, which may have been Robert's, leading away from the lake. Despite this clue, the trail went cold. Little Bobby Dunbar had vanished. The search spread out throughout the South, but Bobby Dunbar remained missing. Several months later, in Mississippi, a vagrant named William Walters was discovered with a small boy that closely resembled Robert. Walters claimed that the boy was Bruce Anderson. He claimed that Bruce's mother was his traveling companion, Julia Anderson. Julia insisted that the boy was indeed her son, Bruce. Initially, evidence seemed to bear this out. Bruce did not respond to the name Bobby Dunbar and did not appear to know Mrs. Dunbar when she arrived to see the boy. But Mrs. Dunbar positively identified him as her son, Robert. Eventually, the courts got involved. A court-appointed arbiter gave custody of Bruce-slash-Bobby to the Dunbars, despite Julia's continued declarations that the child was hers. William Walters even went on trial for the kidnapping of Bobby Dunbar and was convicted, although the sentence was later overturned. And that's where matters sat for many years. The boy would be raised as Bobby Dunbar, Walters would insist he was innocent of any wrongdoing, and Julia would tell her other children that they had a brother who had been taken away from them. It wasn't until Bobby was grown that he spoke to the media about his exceptional childhood. He would state at long last that he recalled his kidnapping by Walters and his time away from his family. He married and had children, and after his death was buried under a tombstone bearing the name Robert Clarence Dunbar. But he didn't rest in peace for long. Behind the scenes, one of Bobby's granddaughters continued to play the game of who's who. It was decided to settle the matter once and for all by DNA testing. In 2004, the results came back. Bobby Dunbar was clearly not Bobby Dunbar. For most of his life, Bobby had unknowingly lived a lie. But not being Bobby Dunbar did not automatically mean he was Bruce Anderson. Who was Bobby Dunbar? Was he Bruce Anderson? If so, what happened to the real Bobby Dunbar back in 1912? Law enforcement is no longer pursuing the case, but the mystery continues. When I was about 10 years old, I was convinced that there was the ghost of a little girl in my room. I would talk to her every night, and even though she wouldn't respond, I always knew she was there. 
One night, I decided I wanted her to respond to me, so I looked all over my room for a piece of paper. But I couldn't find one. Instead, I pulled out an old, tiny, dusty chalkboard from my closet and set it on my bed next to a piece of chalk. I wasn't quite sure what to ask, so I just said, Um, so how many years have you been dead? Write your answer on the chalkboard if you're really here. Not thinking it would work, I fell asleep. The next morning, I got up and looked at the chalkboard. There was no writing on it, so I picked it up to put it back in my closet. When I was walking there, the chalkboard hit the light. You could clearly see, written in the dust, the number 111. I don't try to communicate with her anymore. Over the course of May 1st and 2nd, 1865, one of the grandest funerals in the entire country was held in Chicago when the funeral train of President Lincoln arrived in the city and thousands turned out to see the body of the slain president. It was in Chicago where ghost remnants of the Lincoln train are still believed to manifest on the anniversary of its arrival in the city. Lincoln's train had traveled more than 1,500 miles before arriving in Chicago. Hundreds of thousands of Americans had lined the tracks, formed huge crowds, and stood in long lines to view his body. The city of Chicago spent more than $15,000 to create a spectacular arch, design a hearse, and build decorations for the funeral. When the casket was taken off the train, 36 young women walked beside it and they showered flower petals in all directions. The streets were packed with over 100,000 people as excursion trains had been coming into the city for more than 24 hours, carrying curiosity seekers from the east. Thousands lined up at the courthouse in the rain and mud to see Lincoln. Exhausted soldiers and police officers recalled that the lines moved less than a foot per hour on Monday and Tuesday. More trains arrived, bringing more people to add to the chaos as at least 125,000 lined up to view the casket. Ambulances came and went, carrying injured onlookers and women who fainted from grief and exhaustion. At one point, a section of wooden sidewalk gave way and plunged hundreds into the mud and water below. The route of the funeral procession ran through what was the most elegant section of town. It passed down Michigan Avenue first, then along Lake Street, then along Clark to Courthouse Square, avoiding the world's largest stockyards, the McCormick Reaper Works, and the flour mills. The procession included a legion of clergy with white crosses adorning their black armbands and a division of zouaves and baggy red pants. There was also a group of captured Confederate soldiers who had taken the oath and now belonged to the Union Army. They were followed by a troop of more than 10,000 schoolchildren walking with saddened faces and wearing black ribbons in their hair, along with sashes, armbands, and badges. In the procession were also immigrants from Germany, France, Ireland, and Eastern Europe. They were butchers, bricklayers, tailors, and carpenters, all carrying banners with clumsily worded but unmistakably heartfelt messages about the president. The parade was followed up with a humble yet unwanted procession of colored citizens. 
when the hearse finally arrived at the city's courthouse, the great bell in the tower began to ring so loudly that it could be heard in the farthest reaches of Chicago. It was not until early evening that the doors were opened to the public, and the viewing went on all night long and all through the following day. It was believed that more than 7,000 people per hour passed by the coffin for a quick viewing of the president. On the evening of May 2nd, the great procession formed again, and by the light of 10,000 torches, the eight black horses drew the hearse with Lincoln's coffin on it back to the railroad depot. The train finally began the last leg of its journey on that night, leaving Chicago and passing under arches which were illuminated with bonfires and decorated with sentiments like coming home, bear him home tenderly, and home is the martyr. The train steamed out of Chicago and into legend. Over the years, the stories associated with the great funeral train have included a number of ghostly tales from parts of the country that it passed through in 1865. The first sightings of a phantom reaction of the gloomy train were in New York, but they soon spread westward into Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois. One of the earliest reports of the ghost train appeared in New York's Albany Evening Times. An article appeared that stated, Regularly in the month of April, about midnight, the air on the tracks becomes very keen and cutting. On either side of the tracks, it is warm and still. Every watchman, when he feels the air, slips off the track and sits down to watch. Soon, the pilot engine of Lincoln's funeral train passes with long black streamers and with a band of black instruments playing dirges, grinning skeletons all about. It passes noiselessly. It is moonlight, clouds come over the moon as the phantom train goes by. After the pilot engine passes, the funeral train itself with flags and streamers rushes past. The track seems covered with black carpet, and the coffin is seen in the center of the car, while all about it in the air and on the train behind are vast numbers of blue-coated men, some with coffins on their backs, others leaning upon them. If a real train were passing, its noise would be hushed as if the phantom train rode over it. Clocks and watches would always stop as the phantom train goes by and when looked at are five to eight minutes behind. Everywhere on the road about April 27th, watches and clocks are found to be behind. More sightings of the phantom funeral train began to enter the regional lore of the places where the train had once passed. Many of the stories are still told, even in areas where the railroads have since faded into oblivion, disrepair, and abandonment. The stories still speak of a phantom train, draped in black, that steams along tracks that are no longer in operation or have been taken over by companies that did not exist back in 1865. One such place is Chicago, where one of the most impressive funerals was held for President Lincoln. Many still believe the train makes an appearance each year at the beginning of May, the anniversary of the train's arrival and departure to and from the Windy City. The old tracks, part of the Illinois Central Line in the 1860s, is now used by Metra, which brings commuters back and forth to the city from Indiana, skirting along Lake Michigan. In early May, it is not uncommon to find history buffs, Civil War enthusiasts, and ghost hunters camped out around the tracks. 
The historians are remembering the history that once passed by this place, but the ghost enthusiasts are hoping that history will repeat itself in spectral form. Occasionally, they do not go away disappointed, and according to tradition, if the train does pass by, clocks and watches along its route will cease to work, perhaps never keeping correct time again. More Weird Darkness still to come. If you love the podcast, you might also love the Weird Darkness store. In fact, the newest design is perfect for you weirdos because it reads in big, bold letters, Proud to be a Weirdo. You can get it on hoodies, mugs, tote bags, phone cases, pillows, and more. If you get a Proud to be a Weirdo classic t-shirt, that also comes with a giant Weird Darkness logo on the back so you're spreading the darkness whether you're coming or going. You can see all of the Weird Darkness merchandise and designs by clicking the Store tab at WeirdDarkness.com. The newest audiobook on the audiobooks page at WeirdDarkness.com is Murderous Minds, Volume 4 – Stories of Real-Life Murderers That Escaped the Headlines. Tales of murder and darkness have a way of both terrifying and enthralling us. The line between man and monster is never as definitive or sturdy as we'd like to think. When seemingly ordinary people cross the line between normal behavior and violent acts, it raises the question, what were they thinking? Can your own mind be the key to becoming a monster? What we think, or more importantly, what we believe, can push the boundaries of normal into darkness in unimaginable ways. Whether the beliefs come from misinterpreting organized religion, holding too tightly to old folklore, or letting your imagination run wild, the danger is evident for those unable to keep their minds in check. Murderous Minds Volume 4 follows six chilling stories of faith and imagination gone too far. It's a dangerous reality that has reappeared decade after decade with deadly results for those unfortunate enough to wander too close to the flame. The killers of this anthology have the charisma to convince others of impossible things and the insanity to hold those beliefs themselves. These belief systems come at a high price, especially for the victims of belief-motivated crimes. What old-world folklore would drive a man to murder his wife in front of her family? What happens? when two teenage girls believe their parents are the only thing stopping them from ruling in another dimension? How did a middle-aged housewife convince an entire community that it was a psychic gift predicting the deaths of her neighbors rather than deliberate doses of arsenic? Does the fear of witchcraft still put lives in danger decades after it stopped being tried in court? These stories and others explore the ways that the human mind can be manipulated into carrying out unfathomable acts of violence and depravity under the guise of strong, indoctrinated beliefs. When evil can come from inside your own head, family, friends, neighbors, and even strangers are not safe. Get your copy today and see how these six tales of strange beliefs turned into horrific murders. Murderous Minds Volume 4 
Stories of Real-Life Murderers That Escaped the Headlines Written by Kelly Gaines and Ryan Becker Narrated by Weird Darkness host Darren Marlar Hear a free sample of the audiobook on the audiobooks page at WeirdDarkness.com This story takes place in Brigham City, Utah during the winter of 2003. My wife and I and our two cats had moved to a new rental house across town a few months prior. Almost directly across the street from our house was a mortuary. In fact, you could see it through the living room window. At first, my wife wasn't sure if she was okay with the idea of living across the street from a mortuary. However, after some reassurance from me and a lack of other housing options, she settled in with the situation. Just a little background, my wife does not like being scared at all. She hates scary horror movies, especially if they have a paranormal or supernatural premise. She does okay with zombie flicks and the like, but ghosts and the paranormal aren't her cup of tea. I, on the other hand, love horror movies. I love the adrenaline rush with being scared and coming down from it. Over the course of those few months after moving in, leading up to the incident, we both noticed and experienced strange things happening in the house. It was never really serious or felt threatening in any way, just little things that would mess with your mind a bit. For instance, car keys would turn up missing and we would find them in strange places. Chairs would be moved and pulled out from the table. Generally, I'd find out in the middle of the night, stubbing my toe on the way to the bathroom, our cats would act a little strange sometimes and move and act almost as if they were being pet by an invisible someone or something. Another time, we had just returned from the local Smiths with some groceries. We were both putting groceries away and setting a few out to prepare dinner that evening. I had just put away a can of Pam cooking spray in the lowest shelf in the pantry. My wife reminded me that she needed the cooking spray to help prepare dinner and asked if I could retrieve it from the pantry. I looked inside of the pantry for the cooking spray, and it had vanished. I looked and looked and was practically dumbfounded when I couldn't find it as I had just put it away. My wife couldn't understand it either, as she had just witnessed me putting it away as well. She came over to look for it as well. Together we pulled out all of the items from the pantry, and yet we couldn't find the elusive cooking spray. We put the items back in the pantry, as we both tried to reason with it and came to the conclusion that maybe we left a bag in the car and it's in there, or maybe we left a bag at the store altogether. Regardless, we needed that cooking spray. We searched the car. No dice. I went back to the store and asked the lady at the checkout if we had left a bag. Nada. So then, I further concluded that we didn't buy cooking spray after all and just thought we did. So I bought a can of Pam and headed home. When I got home, I immediately began assisting my wife with dinner preparations and handed her the cooking spray. We finished preparing dinner, put it in the oven to cook, and sat down on the couch and watched some TV while we waited. After dinner, we again sat on the couch and discussed the day's happenings and the crazy thing with the cooking spray. Finally, we decided we needed to get dinner cleaned up and stuff put away. 
We cleared the dirty dishes from the table to the sink and began putting food prep items back into the pantry. My wife hands me the pan to put into the pantry. I open the door to the pantry and… out on the floor falls… you guessed it, the missing can of Pam. It was then that we decided that there was more to these strange happenings than meets the eye. Maybe we had ghosts living with us in our house. To this day, we can't explain it. We talked about the possibility of spirits or ghosts maybe wandering over from the mortuary due to our close proximity. We would have more of the same strange things items missing or moved, and they would happen occasionally over the next few weeks. When something of the sort would happen, we would chalk it up to the trickster ghost or ghosts. We would talk to them cool and casually, stating how funny they were for doing these things, maintaining a calm atmosphere. Again, we never felt threatened or scared, and we just went about our lives coexisting with these trickster ghosts. A couple months went by, and we were now in the thick of a fairly heavy winter. One early morning, I was awakened by something. I really can't say what it was, but I just felt off. I looked at the clock, and it was 2.47 a.m. I was a little upset because I had to get up in a little over an hour to get ready for work. My wife stirred a little as I got up and went to the kitchen to drink some water, but she stayed asleep. As I was getting my drink, I started hearing some strange creaks and noises. It seemed to be moving around outside of the house. I listened intently for a few minutes, and then the noises seemed to stop. I wondered if it was maybe punk kids messing around. I looked out the window and noticed it was snowing and had been most of the night, as we had probably close to five inches of snow on the ground. I decided to go back to bed for a few more minutes before needing to get up for work. I pulled the covers over me and settled in again. After a few minutes, I began to hear the noises again and began to feel almost nauseous. I got a weird, prickly, warm feeling at the back of my neck and my hair stood on end. At that time, our cats, both of which slept in our bed, came out from the covers and both puffed out their fur and started growling and hissing as they stared at the wall. I looked and couldn't see anything. They both remained focused, staring, growling and hissing at the wall, essentially ready for a fight. The racket from the cats startled and woke my wife. She sat up and she asked me what's wrong, what's going on? I told her, I'm not sure, the cats just freaked out and started growling and hissing at the wall. Then we heard the doorknob on the front door begin to shake violently as if someone was trying to break in. We both jumped out of bed and ran to the front door. We both witnessed the doorknob shaking. I told her I had heard some noises earlier moving around outside the house and told her how I thought it was just some punk kids messing around. My wife decided to run to the phone and call 911. I told her, stop, don't call 911, it's not a burglar, it's probably just some punk kids. Then I finally had enough and yelled, you damn kids, I'm coming out to beat your ass. Just then, the doorknob stopped shaking. I just knew I'd scared them off and they were scattering to run away. So I decided to really put the fear of God into them and chase them down the street. This'll teach those damn punk kids, I thought. 
My wife tried to convince me that running into the night during a snowstorm wasn't a good idea and to just let them go, but I was pretty upset and I knew better. I opened the door to run outside, and as I did, snow fell all over my bare feet and onto the floor. The fresh, undisturbed powder had drifted up my door and toppled over when the door stopped supporting it as I opened. I stared out and looked in bewilderment at nothing, absolutely nothing, no kids, no tracks in the snow, nothing, nothing but five-plus inches of fresh powder covering the porch, stairs, lawn, everything. There was no way for anybody to reach the doorknob without disturbing the snow. It was at this point that I became somewhat scared, mostly just unsettled as to what had just happened. Shortly after, the cats calmed down and went back to sleep. My wife and I, however, did not go back to sleep that night. In fact, she had me take a sick day from work. We turned on all the lights in the house, listened to Disney music, and played board games until the late morning. This incident was different than the previous ones. The uneasy feeling, nausea, and hair standing on end. This wasn't our normal trickster ghost that we had been accustomed to. This was something more. It seemed aggressive and angry. We never had any more incidents like this one in the house. We stayed in the house a while longer, but moved out a few months later due to unrelated circumstances. One morning, a couple of weeks back, I woke up and grabbed my phone. About an hour later, I started hearing footsteps coming towards the door. I went and checked, but nothing was there. I got back in bed, and then the scariest thing in my life happened. I heard a little girl say, help me. In shock, I sat there, and again I heard a voice, but instead of a little girl, I heard a middle-aged woman shout, help me. I couldn't move, and then heard a really old woman scream, help me. I got up and ran out of my bedroom. Thankfully, nothing like that has ever happened again. There are many intriguing time travel stories. One of the most puzzling accounts deals with Samuel Warner, a very brilliant but eccentric British inventor who some thinks designed a real-time machine based on secret ancient Egyptian knowledge. The time machine is allegedly sealed in a granite mausoleum in Brompton Cemetery in West London. It's said that if the tomb is opened, it would reveal one of the greatest discoveries of all time, a fully functional time machine. So why don't we open the tomb and take a look what's really inside? One of the reasons why it hasn't been done is because there are no keys to the time travel tomb. The story goes back to Victorian times and contains all intriguing elements that would together make a good sci-fi movie, but what if almost everything turns out to be true? Born in 1794, 
Samuel Alfred Warner was son of a sea captain, and as a child he developed a strong interest in various kinds of inventions. As a young man, Warner contacted British naval historian John Knox Lofton and asked him if he could purchase the design for a certain device. Apparently, Warner started to experiment with the design and, in time, created a powerful device known as an invisible torpedo that could sink any ship into pieces. Warner refused to show the actual device to anyone in the Navy. He also refused to release design schematics unless the Navy first forked out 200,000 pounds, which would be the equivalent of about 7 million pounds today. Whether his powerful weapon was taken seriously or not by the British Navy is still unclear. According to some sources, his invisible torpedo was investigated by Duke of Wellington in cooperation with the Navy's Ordnance Department, but everything came to an end when Warner died. Samuel Warner was close friends with Joseph Bonomi, the Younger, one of London's most respected architects and Egyptologists. Joseph Bonomi, the Younger, was son of Bonomi the Elder, who was an important architect fascinated with history of ancient Egypt. In the village of Blickling near Norfolk, Bonomi the Elder constructed a mausoleum in the shape of an Egyptian pyramid. There are many reports of strange phenomenon around the curious structure, which is often the reason why it's investigated by paranormal investigators. Joseph Bonomi the Younger learned a lot about Egypt from his father, and he became later curator at the British Museum and was widely recognized as one of the greatest Egyptologists in Great Britain. Joseph Bonomi the Younger was one of the first people who saw mysterious papyri scrolls containing voluminous hieroglyphic texts found in the Valley of the Kings. There are those who believe Joseph Bonomi the Younger learned incredible information from these papyri scrolls that were kept a deeply guarded secret, including possibly the key to a method for teleportation and time travel. At this point, the entire story becomes even more exciting. Samuel Warner and Joseph Bonomi the Younger were very good friends, although the two men came from different social classes. Warner was a commoner and died as a poor man, while Joseph Bonomi the Younger was married to Jesse Martin, the daughter of one of England's greatest and most wealthy painters, John Martin. Nevertheless, the two men had something in common – interest in inventions and scientific curiosity. Together, they made a plan to build and distribute a series of teleportation booths in strategic locations around London. Based on ancient Egyptian knowledge obtained from the papyri scrolls in the Valley of the Kings, Warner and Joseph Bonomi the Younger constructed a teleportation system plan that had each booth in a graveyard. It was a clever plan because a cemetery was a convenient place to build unusual structures. A graveyard was a good place to build something out of the ordinary while being undisturbed by observers. In a graveyard, highly eccentric structures could be explained away as the strange last wishes of the dead. A cemetery is a perfect place if you want to hide a secret. Much of this ambitious project was financed by a rich woman known as Hannah Courtois. She gave the two men money to build seven ancient Egyptian technology teleportation devices in key graveyard locations throughout London. In his book, True Time Travel Stories, Amazing Real-Life Stories in the News, 
Richard Bullivant writes that researchers speculate that in exchange for her financial patronage, Samuel and Joseph promised to build a special kind of tomb for Hannah Courtoy and her three daughters, a tomb that would allow them to cheat death by transporting them to another location in time. Unfortunately, Hannah died four years before the time portal tomb designed for her was built and erected in Brompton Cemetery, London. Her body was supposedly moved from its original place of burial to the tomb in 1852. There is reason to believe that Hannah Courtoy and her two daughters are not resting in their elaborate Egyptian tomb in Brompton Cemetery. Apparently, some believe the Courtoy tomb is not a tomb at all, but one of the teleportation devices that Samuel Warner and Joseph Bonomi the Younger set up in London cemeteries. Boulevant writes that no records have ever been found for the tomb which supposedly houses the bodies of the Cordoy women. On paper, the tomb does not exist. Without paperwork, some historians say it would have been simply impossible to place a tomb in that location. Many today believe the Cordoy's tomb sits empty and that the three Cordoy women are not buried there and, in fact, is not a tomb at all, but rather a gateway to travel elsewhere in time. In 1853, Samuel Warner died under mysterious circumstances, and he was supposedly buried in Brompton Cemetery. However, some records show no corpse was ever recovered, and Samuel's grave is unmarked. His death seems to be shrouded in mystery, and so does his final resting place. Many people are still asking if a time travel machine is hidden in the granite mausoleum in Brompton Cemetery in West London. The truth is that no one really knows and the mystery won't be solved until a new key is inserted in the lock and the heavy bronze door swings open to reveal the tomb's secrets. When I was a teenager, some friends and I went to an old abandoned house and took a Ouija board with us. We all went upstairs to the attic, sat on the floor in a circle, and turned off all the lights. Now, there was nothing inside this house except the six of us, four girls and two guys. We started asking the board questions, but it wasn't working. A couple of us girls wondered if some of us were moving the planchette on purpose, but everybody insisted they weren't. A bad thunderstorm suddenly came up and the lightning was really bad. There was even a scary old tree right next to the window, just like in horror movies. And then someone asked the ghost or whatever to show itself. All of a sudden, we heard what sounded like something really heavy hitting the floor. Everybody screamed and jumped up and ran toward the light switch. When we turned on the light, there was nothing on the floor. We left right after that, and we never went back. I don't know about my friends, but I never touched a Ouija board after that. If you like the podcast, be sure to subscribe for free so you don't miss future episodes. Also, 
help spread the word about Weird Darkness in your social media or text your friends about it and invite them to become weirdos along with you. Do you have a dark tale to tell? Tell your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. Also on the website, you can find all of my social media, hear free samples of all the audiobooks I've narrated, and you can also join the Weird Darkness Weirdos Facebook group to hang out with me and other listeners of the podcast. You can email me from the contact page, and if you're listening via Apple Podcasts, I would love it if you leave a review to let others know that you're listening to the podcast and what you think of it. Sinead from the UK said, Hi, weirdos. This is my favorite podcast by far. Narrated beautifully and the stories are so incredibly creepy. Catrocks62 said, Absolutely fascinating. I love the dark stories. Marzipan92 said, I found this podcast by accident, but I'm glad I did. I love listening to stories while I'm working. I also like that they're long so I can enjoy them longer. Mizzy Ragamuffin in Canada said, I work 12 hours a day driving in a circle doing no more than 30 kilometers. This podcast has made my life livable. You have an amazing voice and you're an incredible storyteller. Thank you so much. Zaltus said, I've listened to three or four shows so far. They've all kept my interest. Nice work. Doc Davey from Ireland said, This guy is simply the best. Keep going, man. Keep going. And Lady K99 says, So glad I found my people, the weirdos. All stories in this episode are purported to be true, and you can find source links or links to the authors in the show notes. Music in this episode provided by Midnight Syndicate and Shadows Symphony. Weird Darkness is a registered trademark of Marler House Productions. Copyright Marler House Productions 2019. And if you or your company are ever in need of a professional voice actor, I'd love to be considered and talk to you about it. You can get a hold of me on the contact page at WeirdDarkness.com. And now that we're coming out of the dark, I'll leave you with a little light. Galatians 6, verse 10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. And a final thought. Wise people are not always silent, but they know when to be. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness.